Welcome back to Legends of the Craft. I'm here with my co-host, Brother Axel Savari, and we have a very interesting subject today, very different from our previous subjects. We're going to talk about the four cardinal virtues, which are very important to Freemasonry and also very important to the Christian world and to the Greco-Roman world. You know, this is something that uh, I think you know every Freemason is aware of the four cardinal virtues. It's something that's inculcated uh, in the first degree. It's something that's stressed over and over again as you're educated in Masonry. But it might be something that people uh, that's kind of fallen out of favor. I would say in the modern world, we don't really learn about the four cardinal virtues or uh, or about traditional morality anymore. Um, so why don't we start by defining what the four cardinal virtues are, and then we'll kind of get into their history. So the four virtues are prudence, fortitude, temperance, and justice. Sometimes fortitude is courage. For like to the Stoics, they use the word courage, but it's, it's essentially the same thing. And these four are extremely important masonry because they mark the four corners of the mosaic pavement. There's four tassels at the four corners, and those tassels represent these four virtues. And even though this is mentioned to us as masons, I think a lot of people rush over it, like you said, Brother Axel. These four are supposed to be the foundation of the morality of a Freemason. These four, when practiced, allows you to excel in every area of life and to become what every Mason should be, which is the guide and the helper of the ignorant. I think you make a really good point that, that needs to be stressed, that these are the foundations of a moral life. Uh, in masonry, they're depicted as tassels, as ornamentation on the mosaic pavement. But that, I think that kind of conveys the wrong message in the sense that, oh, these are nice ornaments that you put on once you actually have the foundation. But they, they are the four corners. They, they define the boundaries of where a mason does his work. And um, they're called the cardinal virtues which, uh, because of the Latin word for hinge, cardo. It, it basically, like, these are the virtues that a moral life hinges upon. That's how important they were in the ancient world. And I think they hinge upon one another. We tend to look at virtues as individual, or they, we isolate specific virtues um, as if each one's practiced by themselves. But really, one leads into the other. So fortitude and temperance are, are needed together, uh, justice and prudence, prudence and fortitude, Etc. Etc. So they all sort of interplay with one another. So I think as as we're talking today, we should be very careful not to to make these standalone virtues. No, I think you're right. I think they they form the corners of a moral tesseract. Um, they're they're this kind of interlocking cube that's always folding in and out of itself. Like you can't have prudence without fortitude, but fortitude leads one to be able to have prudence, which in turn leads you to be able to practice temperance, which creates justice. But without justice, how can you be prudent? Like they all kind of, there's an endless loop here that, that you cycle through. And when you're weak at one, it weakens all the others. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like the foundations of a building. You know, you weaken one corner, the whole building can come down. And that's why all four have to be practiced together and individually. And so I think as a Mason, you know, we're always thinking, well, you know, how, how do you be a Mason? Well, I think it's very clear to be a Mason is to be prudent, to be temperate, to have courage, and to practice justice. You know, Masonry appears as a very complex system to those of us that become initiates. But it, in reality, it tells us from the very beginning, it's very simple. Be moral. Here are the four cardinal virtues. Here, here's the foundation of everything you need. Here are some working tools. Get to it. You know, um, actually, I had a, a recently initiated brother um, 
ask me like, okay, so 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 how do I put all this stuff into practice? I, I've got all these great principles. Like, how do I do this? My answer is, well, you just do it. And you're going to fail. You're going to fall on your face a lot. And you're going to make a lot of mistakes. But you just do it. That's it's You take these four principles and you live them. So why don't we get started by going through each one and we'll kind of discuss it. And then we're, we're going to do a little bit of history because there's actually some real fascinating history of how these four have basically created the modern world. The Western world is built upon these four principles, whether we're conscious of it or, or unconscious of it. But let's begin with prudence. Brother Axe, you want to read that? So prudence in English, or the Latin prudentia, is the ability to discern the appropriate course of action to be taken in a given situation at the appropriate time. Man, is this the one that I struggle with the most. Finding the correct path through the many lines of cause and effect is always something that I've uh, personally struggled with. But I think it's, I think it's kind of the, uh, the beginning of, of this ladder because without the ability to discern the right path, I mean, we end up wandering in darkness, and it's, and it's hard to lead into the other ones without having at least some dim idea of where it is you want to go and how to get there. I think this attribute is attributed to the prophets of the Old Testament, for example. You know, they, they foresaw what was going to happen, um, and that's kind of on a grand scale. On, on a personal scale, I think this is tied to our intuition. You know, it's to, to follow that internal compass of what we need to say, what we need to do, how we need to act. And I think every human has this. You know, a lot of theological writers, I would almost say every religion kind of says that the spark of divinity, this light of truth is within us. So we all kind of start equal here, on an equal footing. Uh, Irregardless of, irregardless, that's not a word, regardless (laughs) of, um, you know, what family we grew up, what religion, what culture, all those things don't make a difference. Everybody sort of has an internal compass, and prudence is there. The question is, do we listen to it, or do we ignore it? And when we ignore it, I think we find unhappiness. I'd agree with that, and I, and I think, you know, from a kind of more modern, secular perspective, I, I think this can be thought of in terms of, like, you know, human consciousness is based on the recognition of patterns in nature or in, in the phenomena that we experience. Prudence, I think, is finding finding the right pattern for to connect one end to another to to look at a, a cloud of points of, of data so to speak and figure out how to get from point a to point z in the most direct course possible so it's kind of slip what you're trying to say is we're trying to skip classical logic kind of go to some quantum thinking here where we don't have to go through the various steps not necessarily just to to see the correct order of steps I think is prudence. Prudence doesn't I, it doesn't convey some kind of like you know skipping to the end to me. It just clearly defines the very long path. Like it's going to be a lot of work to get to a life of virtue, but prudence is the ability to see the steps that are necessary to be taken, maybe three or four steps ahead. Yeah, I mean, I kind of see it a little differently. I I, I, I do see it as sort of quantum thinking, which our brains are essentially quantum computers. It's like. We can know things without having to know all the steps in between. We can jump from A to Z. And I think that's prudence is. Like it's, you get that gut feeling. You mm-hmm. just know what to do, but you can't explain it. And I, I don't think prudence has to be defended. It only has to be done. It only has to be executed. When you start thinking too much about it, 
you you're you're leaving prudence behind. You're, you're trying you're trying to reason it out. You're trying to justify things, and I think that's the problem. Prudence is your gut feeling. You got to go with it. It doesn't. You don't need to defend it. Just do it. Do you think we could liken prudence to uh, a kind of like a more refined version of like psychic abilities, being able to discern the future accurately in one's own imagination? Absolutely, brother Axel. I think prudence definitely connects with our psychic abilities. I mean, this ability um, to engage in telepathy or um, clairvoyance or any of these type of practices, um, I think is an attempt to, in a sense, be able to tell the future. It's able to figure out where we need to go and what we're doing. It's giving us, as clairvoyance uh, means in its original French, clear vision. And I think to develop prudence is to develop our, our psychic faculties. Um, there's a lot of great novels, I think, that talk about this. You know, if you, you can go to the Foundation uh, series, you know, Psychohistory. We can go to the Dune series. And, you know, the, the Savior in there, Moedib, has, has, has prescience or prescience. But the, the fact of the matter is it's the ability to see the many lines of cause and effect. I think you said that early mm-hmm. on here. It's not to actually see the future mm-hmm. before it happens. It's to see how all the things that we do now, our actions and the actions of others, how they will lead down specific roads to specific ends. And I think that's the key. So the master of prudence, the one that truly practices prudence, is one that can see all these many paths and figure out what he or she must do in order to get down that road. Well, I want to I want to go back to the definition of prudence here for a moment. We we gave it as the ability to discern the appropriate course of action to be taken in a given situation at the appropriate time. And I think that last part about timing is very important, for, specifically from a Masonic perspective. Um, masonry is a philosophy of the center, like it moves down a center line, but the pendulum is always swinging from side to side. And so when that when that plumb line actually crosses that center line, when those two um, those two lines intersect, is the time for a mason to take action. Like if we look at the square and the compasses, the square and the compasses delineate two different shapes. But when their lines cross, that's where we're to take action. It's it's not in one realm or the other. But when the two worlds meet, is the time for a mason to take some action. And I think that's a very important part of prudence: is not only discerning what is right but when it is right to do so. So I think it's a great point to hinge now into our next virtue, which is fortitude. Fortitude is also termed courage, as we said before. It's forbearance, strength, endurance, and the ability to confront fear, uncertainty, and intimidation. This is really important, obviously. I mean, without courage, without fortitude, we're too weak to do anything. So I think developing fortitude is our ability to initiate action. Well, it's like you were saying earlier, with, with prudence being that gut feeling that you just have to follow, right? That's just a feeling. Like, the fortitude is the action that carries it out. I mean, how many times have you been standing in front of something, whether it's a precipice you're trying to jump off, whether literally or figuratively, like, you have that gut feeling. You want to do it, but are you going to? Are you going to make that leap? Are you going to surmount the the biological impulse that's holding you back because that that gut feeling is is coupled with like the understanding of prudence but also like every cell in your body doesn't want to do it fortitude is the ability to push through that feeling and and to, and to actually act on what prudence tells you is right 
And to add to that, I think, you know, doing the right thing when there are no consequences um, isn't the same thing. It, the, mm-hmm. You know, fortitude is there has to be some sort of pressure. There has to be that fear or intimidation, and then you do the right thing. I, I think it's a huge, huge important thing to denote here is that we are measured by our actions when confronted in those situations. Because, you know, to do the right thing when nobody's looking or to do the right thing in your head or to, to choose something when there are no consequences is very easy. But when there's consequences, that's really you see the character of a human being. I think this is something that was emphasized in the ancient mysteries a lot more than it is today in in our rituals. I mean, you you look back at the tales of the Egyptian mysteries where the the aspirants crossing pits of crocodiles or crawling through dark caves that they can't see through, getting all cut up. It's a real test of your fortitude. Mm -hmm. Now, the the modern world, I think, has softened us a little bit in in terms of how we test people's fortitude, but I, I still think that's an essential part of the mysteries is that, you know, Oftentimes, philosophy is relegated to these very comfortable environments where we just get to kind of sit around and think. You know, um, if we look back at human civilization, the privilege to sit and think is a very rare one. And I think uncoupling that from the practice of fortitude, of, of physically confronting the world and actually having to push through things that are truly difficult, um, I think it weakens philosophy. To, to, to detach those two. And, and that's why I think it's important to emphasize that each of these virtues depends on the practice of every other. Because without one, like if your prudence is, ever, is never tested, is it really prudence? Do you really have it? Do you, are you, do you really have the ability yeah, you've to see be those cl- clear lines of cause mm-hmm. and effect? Well, and, and I think, I mean, look at our civilization today. We're creating a civilization where nobody should fail. You know, and I think that's wrong. I think when, when you're creating a place where you don't have to be strong and you don't have to show courage, then all the other virtues fail. And I think that's one of our, our issues here in modern times is that we, we don't want people to fail as a collective. And I think that's very dangerous. We need the trials that you mentioned in order to, to show that we've overcome. And only those that overcome you know, can start moving up the ladder of initiation. But if we create this sort of sterile environment where nobody can fail, nobody can get hurt, everybody has to be safe, everybody gets a gold star, everybody has to have the same grade, you know, it's that, you know, the outcome has to be the same for everybody. Well, then all the virtues collapse and we don't have a virtuous society anymore. So we need to go back to a civilization where trials are accepted as rites of passage. I think it's not only uh, uh, a social system where there are, there are trials, but uh, a system in which you know moral choices have consequences. I'm looking at this list here, and it it strikes me very much that these these are the kinds of things that you develop in a world with consequences. In a world without consequences to your actions, these things don't arise. You don't have a necessity for prudence. You don't need fortitude. Temperance is is not even a question, and justice is lacking because without consequences. There's no reason to apply morality and virtue. Like in in terms of like if there's nothing at risk, then why do right or wrong? Right? Like like if you like you said, like if you suffer no actual consequence from not doing the right thing, then who cares? Well, I mean obviously it doesn't matter, but it it even goes further than that because if we have a civilization 
that becomes overly subjective in its thinking. And of course, subjectivity is part of, of the human experience. But when it becomes the only mode of navigating everyday life, then the virtues collapse as well. Mm-hmm. Subjectivity is only good as in our own perspectives, you know, our own views in a book or a piece of art or what's going on in current events. Like We are subjective creatures, but we're living an objective reality. And these four virtues are the four corners of objective morality, of objective reality. And if we can't create a foundation on these four points, then what's the point of morality? Because if everybody's morality is whatever they want it to be, then we create we can't have a society because society has to be built upon a bedrock of some truth of some objective reality and i think these four are those is that bedrock so we need to have the strength to be tested in all four and if we can't then they don't exist and if they don't exist civilization will collapse i think what's really interesting about the four cardinal virtues i mean you know i i guess in some ways, you know, some people might construe them as a Christian philosophy, as we'll get into later, but the, they're really not. They're, they're independent of ideology. Like, prudence does not depend on what religion you belong to. No. Fortitude doesn't, doesn't matter what society that you live in or what culture you have. Absolutely Temperance not. is always a good idea, no yeah, matter absolutely. at what point in history you find yourself. And justice is a universal like desire of all human beings. Yeah, who disagrees with justice? Yeah, who doesn't want justice yeah. in their society? We can discuss what justice is. Mm-hmm. We can discuss what temperance looks like. You know, We can analyze prudence and fortitude, but no one's going to disagree fundamentally that these are good things. Yeah, that, that we shouldn't try to inculcate these. Well, people. I mean, I guess you could, but if you are, then you're a psychopath, and, you know, and, and you have no place yeah. in civilization. Yeah, you should act without wisdom, be cowardly, totally succumb to all of your appetites, and commit tyranny on your fellow man. Like, there's no, there's no social system in the world or in history that has ever advocated no, for that. No. The discussion is how do we achieve these and how do we put and, them in the And what does it really look like? And really... All the various religions have basically the same explanation. But people like to fight over details because they're little snobs about that thing because they want to show how they're more right than the other person. And so they have to get into the details of these words and everything. But at a spiritual level, we all know how to follow these. And that's why masonry, being the universal science, the universal art of living, has placed them as the foundation of virtue. I think that's a really good point to, to talk about temperance because, again, all of these feed into every every one of them, but, they, but they're all independent too. Temperance. Are we, are we hinging now? I think temperance? we're going to hinge right okay, into temperance hinge. here. So temperance, also known as restraint, is the practice of self-control, abstention, discretion, and moderation, or tempering the appetition or the appetites. Now, I just learned the word appetition today, but it's actually, <laughs> it, it's a very interesting idea that reminds me a lot of, of Buddhist philosophy, but what this is basically kind of the four cardinal virtues are used by the human being in the fight between appetites and reason. Basically, our lower base desires and our higher aspirations towards rational things that we choose for ourselves. Not not our animal instincts towards you know pleasure and safety and warmth, but our rational aspirations towards civilization or education or self-betterment, the, the things that defy our animal impulses. And temperance is the weapon that, dis, that allows you to 
inculcate all of the other virtues in a daily habit. The, the idea of like controlling yourself for a future outcome is the basis of all civilization. Without temperance, we can make no progress as a collective. I think temperance too is is the way into the mysteries. You know, if, if there's a door to the temple, it's temperance, and you have to knock on temperance. And and what I mean by that is, is that um, it begins with the initiator, the neophyte, being able to subdue his passions by no longer indulging in his appetites. I mean, this doesn't mean you can have a glass of wine. This is, you know, the temperance mm-hmm. movement in the United States is where, you know, to abstain from alcohol and to make it illegal. Uh, that's ridiculous as well. It's that you drink when it's appropriate and you don't drink because it controls you. The, the, the drink doesn't control you. you. You control the drink and you do it at the appropriate time. And I think, you know, temperance, we usually look at it through through the eyes of alcohol or drugs, but... I think it's sex. I think it's food. I think it's all, and you know. I think it's our ways of thinking. Yeah. It's our ways of interacting with other people, how we maintain our relationships. Like, I, I, oftentimes it's very easy to find the physical vices that we engage in, but that's really just the first layer of temperance. The second but, but it begins there. Yes. If you can't do that, then you're not going to do it in your mind. If you can't control what goes into your mouth, then you're not going to control what comes out of exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, it, this all begins with simple practices and then it leads to higher mental states of of temperance and and temperance comes basically from the word to moderate it's to walk the middle path the golden path we have to learn to be in control of ourselves it seems so easy when you say it but it's not all of us have some sort of temptation that we give into um and again the physical ones are the easiest ones but i think that's where you start you know mm-hmm. and i think a good practice for an enter apprentice, for, for a new mason, is to write down you know, those things that you think you're not in control of and then work daily to create habits to place them in, you know, under control. Mm-hmm. And by then, you know, by the time that you do this, then I think your mind starts to free itself. And then it's, it's in a place where it can explore strange new worlds. But if you're too busy shoving your face full of food drinking too many cocktails, indulging in too many drugs, then you're not free. You're a slave. And if you're a slave, well, you're not going to get anywhere spiritually. Well, I think this is why the Greeks uh, in particular place such an emphasis on like athletics and sport and, and the idea of like training the body. It wasn't just because they're a bunch of, of meatheads out in Athens. Like th- these same people that wrote all of these philosophies were soldiers and athletes. Like they, they had full control of their bodies because – our, our bodies are an outer expressions of our minds. If we're not in control of our bodies, we're definitely not in control of our minds. And, and it takes me back to this kind of conflict that um, Aristotle and Plato identified as kind of like the central conflict of human life is this conflict between the appetites and the reason. Our, our higher aspirations and our lower aspirations. And, and I know today, in today's world, that kind of, kind of sounds very religious and, and, and cult-like, but really, like, this is the basis of philosophy, is like, how do we progress out of being animals? There's this general idea, whether it's in the East or in the West, that human beings are in a state where they're not really in control of themselves when they start life, and that life is the process of becoming in control of yourself. Well, we're in a sort of purgatory. You know, a physical purgatory where we're transitioning from animal state to full human state. And so we're burning away the passion, just like you'd burn away your sin, your sins in purgatory. And once we burn them away, then we're allowed to be free and to explore the, the mental world and to, 
come up with all these great concepts and practice them towards the evolution of mankind. You know, I was in Greece a couple years ago, and I was in Athens, and we went to go to the site of Aristotle's school and uh, where he taught people. And there's not much left, but you can walk the grounds, and there's still some buildings and remains. Very, very cool, very special, you know. Um, but it's called a gymnasium because they spent three-quarters of their time um, doing sports, testing themselves physically. And then they'd spend about a quarter of the time talking about philosophy. But the idea in, in ancient Greece was you exhausted the body, and then you talked about philosophy. And, and I, there's something here that I find real fascinating. It's like you need to go on a hard run every day. You need to get beat up a little bit uh, you know, physically, you know, you do some weights, uh, play some sports, do some cardio, whatever it is. And then your mind is more ready to receive the truth. Well, there's no coincidence that every Buddhist monastery in China and Japan was also a martial arts school. Mm-hmm. Like the, the, that was, I, and it's something I think that was kind of exchanged between these two cultures in the ancient world. There were definitely travelers kind of between the West and the East back then that, that I think exchanged this idea of, you know, this holiness to sports. In the Bible, there, there are two sports that are mentioned, uh, wrestling and archery. These are the two holy sports of Christianity because they're more than just sports. Wrestling is the idea of, of um, you know, physically grappling with your inadequacies. And archery is the idea of like aiming all of your body's efforts towards a single Focus. higher purpose. Focus, right? And these two physical activities sharpen the mind in such a way that they can be used to contemplate these higher things. And I think, you know, when I was, we went to Aristotle's school, that's the main thing they did was, was wrestling is what they did. Because, yeah, you're grappling with your passions, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a, your opponent is kind of a mirror of who you are. And you guys are fighting for control over your mind. Like uh, Gabriel uh, wrestling the angel. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, it's just so fascinating. I, and you know, just to kind of spin off a little bit, but not too far, uh, in Japan. You know, uh, a lot of the companies in Japan, there's some sort of exercise routine before work uh, or right before work begins and like at lunchtime. So everybody is forced to engage in a time of rest and a time of exercise before they go to the duties of the day. Uh, I, we don't have that here in the United States. I don't think we in the, in the Western world we don't do that. And I think it's a loss from the ancient world because I think people would actually be more productive and more focused and more ready to to grapple with the foes of the day, you know, with the troubles of their job. Um, but we're more lethar- lethargic, excuse me. Well, I mean, like, and, and these things manifest in a society. These, that's, that's, I think, one of the things that we need to, or that I like to stress in, when, when talking about things like philosophy. Like, it's very easy to see philosophy as something that's confined to these dusty old books that nobody reads anymore. But, like, look at society. What are, what are two of the biggest problems, at least in the West, that everybody can recognize, that everybody has recognized. We have a huge problem with obesity, and we have a, and, and everybody would say that our education system has failed us, or, or is at least declining. Like, there's a general attitude that our education generally, as a society, is less than it once was, and we have a huge problem with obesity. Like, these are not unconnected. Like, when we stop practicing these philosophical virtues, and, and and like actually bringing them into our life, it has an effect on the entire world, and that's I think something that the Greeks recognized that that perhaps we don't anymore. Maybe because we don't have any philosophers anymore, but philosophy on an individual level creates 
civilization on a collective yeah, level. I mean, this is a simple, like, New Age maxim, which is the mind is connected to the spirit, and the spirit is connected to the mind, and the mind connected to the body, and the body to the spirit. Like, it, 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 there's a trinity here. And if you forsake one point of the triangle, the other two are not going to be complete. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think there's this tendency in esotericism that the body, that the material world is some sort of useless thing that we just have to overcome. And I understand that from a certain perspective, Mm -hmm. but it leads us to uh, try to abandon the importance of the physical world. It's a place of trials. It's a place where we test our fortitude. And how do we know that we're temperate? Every time we make a decision in the physical world, we know we're temperate. So again, this is where fortitude connects with temperance, you know? So if I say I'm gonna be moderate, I'm gonna be tested. And I'm gonna be tested because if I indulge too much in alcohol, I'm gonna have consequences. If I indulge too much in drugs, I'm gonna have consequences. If I indulge too much in eating, I'm gonna have consequences. Well, and not just you, but all of us. Like, yeah, it's a collective your, thing. your consequences yeah. will be visited on me. Like whether I like it or not, like mm-hmm. the, your consequences are, are a part of the entire field of consequences that create the world. Like this is one of the problems I have with, with this kind of new age idea that, you know, we, we control the world by what we think. Like that's true. But we, what really happens is like I'm not creating my own world. You're not creating your own world. We are together along with everybody else on this planet creating a world. All of us, like all of our actions, all of our consequences, all of our dharma, it's all creating the world. Like, I I think it's a very kind of like selfish misinterpretation to be like, yeah, I'm creating my own world by my own philosophy. It's like, no, you have to contend with my philosophy and I with yours. Like, it is all a contribution. We're creating this together. It's not one person. We're we're all in this together. And, And when virtue is lacking in any of the one parts, the whole will feel it. It, it, it can't not feel it. Like if we really do believe that everything's connected, then I don't see how we can not come to that conclusion. And I think that hinges into the final virtue here, which is justice, um, which is considered fairness, and the Greek word also having the meaning of righteousness. And I think that's you know people don't like the word righteousness today, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they always it's, like, it's, it's like a slur. It, yeah, it's a, you're what pompous. are you righteous? Yeah, um, but righteousness means to be a person that does right all the time. And that's that's really what justice is, right? Justice is this ability to do the right thing, to administer the right consequences, to accept the right consequences. And in some ways, I think this is the highest of the virtues because once you, when you can be prudent and know what to do, when you've been tested um, in what you're doing and you can be moderate in all your actions, then you've obtained justice. That means you are able to be fair to all around you and, and more importantly, be fair to yourself. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of times our, the greatest abuser of ourselves is ourselves. Absolutely, I would agree with that. And I think that like, you know, justice is a virtue that kind of encompasses one's entire life in the sense that like justice is, is how we can look at all of your actions as a sum total. Like, your individual actions can be just, like, righteous or unrighteous, but it also kind of, in my mind, pertains to, like, are you a righteous person in general? Like, what is what is the sum total? And, like, what do all of your righteous and unrighteous actions add up to? Like, what's the balance after after the righteousness adds and the, and the unrighteousness subtracts? Like, what's left over? 
to me it's it's kind of like a weighing you in the balance like the um like the the egyptian book of the dead when you're walking through the halls of the afterlife and your heart is weighed against that feather that's justice like it's both individual but also like it's who you are and it kind of like plato and aristotle argued about whether or not virtue was just thinking the right things and knowing the right things or doing or doing the right things and and having a record of doing the right things i think they're I think both are correct. Mm-hmm. It is, is it's, it's a record of thought and it is a record of action. We might say action precedes thought, but nevertheless, um, well, it precedes it in, in importance, should I say. But I think both are important because what we think is eventually what we'll become. Mm-hmm. And, what we, and, and, and what we do becomes our thoughts. So, I mean, it's the chicken and the egg. Which one comes first? Well, I think they're both important and we, mm-hmm. we need to focus on both. Justice is the ultimate goal in civilization you know when we when we talk about all forms of politics whether it's taxation or health care whether it's military action um feeding the poor like all these things are rooted around is it fair that's the question right mm-hmm. in every political decision and and frankly going down into the family structure you know um you know should i do this for my child should i not do this how do i treat one uh, child compared to another child like Everything comes down to some sort of question on fairness. And there is no objective measurement for this, right? I think the only way we can get an answer is by mastering the other three. And when, and when you have the other three mastered, then you are more qualified mm-hmm. to be a magistrate or a judge, so to say, in the matters of justice. Well, I think that's, that's the only way one can be a judge, right, is if one is just. Like, how can you have an unjust judge? Then you don't have, then you don't have a just judge. Like, it's, it's very, like, these, these are uh, contradictory in terms. Like, if, if you're not going to practice, then you cannot preach. Like, that's the idea behind the four cardinal virtues. And I think it's very important, again, to stress, um, you know, I feel like uh, Thomas Carlyle here, but, like, these are, <laughs> these are the foundations of civilization. Like, I, I think, you know, you, you mentioned that all, all societies are geared towards the end of justice. And, I think that's mostly true throughout history. I think some civilizations have not necessarily been, but like, to, to like, th- give me one. Um, you really put me on the spot. Yeah, I'm putting here. you on the spot. Yeah, give me one. I mean, you, take, you know, you know what? You're you're right. Well, take, the, take the Nazis. You know, we could say they're the most unfair, but that's not true. To the Nazi, that's yeah. They, in their perspective, it, the white race was supreme, and it had it should you know have access to all the lands and resources. Mm-hmm. That's what's fair to them. Now, I think objectively that's stupid and moronic, but nevertheless, that the justice was still their aim. It in was a sort of a it sort was of organized way. around an idea of justice, mm-hmm. and, and and you know thinking about it there when you put me on the spot, it's it's true. The only ones that I would call unjust are the ones I disagree with, right? Yeah. Because they they don't conform to my because you ideas, don't think right? they're fair, exactly. <laughs> because I don't think they're fair, but but I think still like it's a monumental achievement. I think to have built societies that care about justice. Like, like to move from s- the Stone Age, right, of just pure survival, to a concept of, like, how can we make the world fair? Like, to move from an existence where it's just, you know, like Thomas Hobbes says, brutal, nasty, and short, to, well, is it fair? Like, is a huge leap, at least in my mind. I don't know. Maybe that's well, always been there, but... But I think it goes back to these four virtues is that you know, it's in us. This compass is in us. Everyone is asking, is it fair? 
everyone's asking that. That's a mm-hmm. that's a question every human being asks. E- even the psychopath, I think. What is fair to them? They they might have a skewed perspective because you know their brains are wired in a different way from everyone else. But nevertheless, I think as a child, as a sibling, as a father, as a mother, you know, as a business owner, as a politician, you know, as a worker, you take any of these roles, and you're basically saying, "Am I being treated fairly? Am I being fair?" Do you think then it's the purpose of masonry? So so like I find it very interesting that you start. In, in terms of, and I think as human beings, we start our ideas of justice and contemplating ideas of justice within our own families, like growing up. That the, mm-hmm. the family is the kind of the nuclear lab in which we develop these ideas of justice. And as we grow up into society, like that's kind of slowly expanded to, you know, the people that look like us and the people that live near us and the people that think like us. But my question is, like, do you think masonry's purpose is to expand the compasses of that justice to to universally enfold all of humanity. You know, uh, I don't know who said this, but there's a quote saying the the way to cure humanity of ignorance is to travel. And it's interesting that Masons, uh, one of their names are is is travelers. We are mm-hmm. travelers, you know, and we travel to distant lands, to foreign lands. And what that really means is that we explore uh, different cultures, different mindsets, philosophies. And I think that is how you cure ignorance. You know, the more we expand what we know outside our little bubble, outside of our little family, our little community, uh, outside our race, outside um, our economic group, all, all these little bubbles that we find ourselves in, then we begin to expand our horizon. And then we are more in a position to practice justice, right? Absolutely. I, I think, you know, that's that's really kind of like you, you, you're not practicing justice until you have that perspective. Like this is, the, to me, is like one of the, the most, this is why I say it, it kind of like encompasses your whole life at the end of it because like justice is the, is the distant, distant peak of the highest, highest mountain, right? Like it is the end of the climb. It is the ultimate aim, like yeah. you said not only of all civilizations, but of each individual life is to find justice. Like the, find the justice of your own individual existence, why you were created, like what the purpose of your existence is, I think is to find your conception of justice. And I think this is why, you know, throughout the world today and and throughout history, there's basically two camps. You know, we call them liberals, conservatives, there's a lot of names for Mm. it. it doesn't really make a difference. I think the idea is, is that, you know, some of us are geared to think of fairness through our, our right hemisphere of our brain, mm-hmm. and some of us conceive of justice through the left hemisphere of the brain. One's more rational and logical, um, and the other one's more abstract and artistic. And these two mindsets is what's really competing in the world. But I think it's necessary. It's the scales of justice. It, it's it is. the two weights. They're, they're, they're going up and down. And, mm-hmm. and how can you know justice exists un- unless there are two sides that are um, not in equilibrium, but there's mm-hmm. a tension yeah. between the two. A changing tension, right? Absolutely. Like, and, and I think that's kind of, that's really the dynamic of the world is this kind of like constant fluctuation between these two weights, which in themselves are not necessarily like good or bad. I think that the good or bad part, the fair or unfair, the righteous or unrighteous, like that comes from observing the movement of the scales, not from the content of what's placed on the scales necessarily. Like 
seeing them actually move in the balance is how we get those conceptions mm-hmm. of right and wrong, of good and evil. Like that's where that comes from. Not necessarily like the content or the material that we put on there to judge. Well, if we were in a state of equilibrium and everything was equal in the universe, there could be no ability to discern truth because we would be in a sort of monadic state in which there could be no outer expression. There could be no you know, stepping outside of the situation and looking back at it because everything would be self-contained. So I think the tension of these two positions is what allows the enlightened mind to differentiate between mm-hmm. these two things. And we call them good and evil. It's, it's so wrong and so right at the same time mm-hmm. because the problem is, is that each side sees the other as evil and themselves as good. Mm-hmm. So both are evil and both are good at the same time. Mm-hmm. Not to sound like the Tao Te Ching, but, but I think that's exactly how it is. So the fight of the scales moving up and down is the fight of each each side's perspective or each person's perspective trying to overcome the other. But they're each doing it to one another. Well, that, that makes me think of the mosaic pavement that you brought up at the very beginning, the, in the, the, um, the surface of the, of the black and white squares in the sense that, like, it's the terrain, not the world, right? Like, the mosaic pavement is what the traveler, the traveling man, travels upon. It isn't what he is. It isn't the entire world itself. But, like, it's... it's it's the way to the place of light, right? Is to pass over this area of black and white, of good and evil. This kind of like duality is a, it's a surface we yeah. walk on. Well, I, I like that you mentioned that because really we're walking on it. We're not, we aren't the squares. Mm-hmm. We're not black and white. We're, we are not um, literalists. We are walking upon it. We have to overcome it. And I think that's why we walk upon it because mm-hmm. we're overcoming this limitation, this this dual nature, this duopoly, if I can, of <laughs> of powers on Earth or, mm-hmm. or of the universe, yeah. we have to overcome it. And I think that the Mason receives special training by which to do so. Yeah, it's a it, like like we mentioned at the beginning. And this is again where it comes full circle. In order to to get to that balance of the scales, we have to have the prudence to find that center line, the fortitude to take the first step, and the temperance to keep going when it gets difficult. You know, the four could be seen as three steps, and the, and the fourth point, um, you know, justice is, is kneeling in, mm-hmm. in humble submission before the divine laws of the universe. So you have to take three movements and then bend the knee before the God of justice. So let's let's move ahead here. We've we've kind of we've we've talked about these four virtues, but I think the history, brother Axel, is fascinating because you know I think a lot of Masons think. Masonry invented <laughs> yeah. these, but these ideas are from time immemorial, frankly. And you know, we can go back th- literally thousands of years and find these four ideas, you know, written down by some of the greatest minds. And, and one of them is Plato in the fourth book of the Republic. And this is like I don't know, 400 BCE. He explains that these are the foundations of a moral life. You know, um, Protagoras in, in about 300 BCE, he had the same list, but he added piety as, as a fifth point um, to the list. The Stoics, and you know, we already had it, kind of, we kind of spoke about the, these four um, virtues in our Stoic podcast, but um, Zeno and Marcus Aurelius, 
they they were continuously talking about these four as, as being the foundation of a virtuous life. So I have a question here for you because like anytime I think about Greek philosophy and the Greek civilization of the ancient world, it kind of seems to me like everybody's just sitting around talking all the time about what is a moral life. I, I get the impression that maybe this is selective because we only have this kind of philosophy uh, in the record, but like do, do you think this is still a question in our society? Like, are we still trying to find out what a moral life is? Because to me, it feels like that question has been relegated to the past. Like, like it's something that we've solved and then forgot a long time ago that doesn't really mean anything anymore. That's a really good question, Brother Axel. It's one that I um, struggle with because I've gone back and forth over 20 years thinking about this. But at this point in my life, I think that you know we've we've reached we've reached a climax of technology and and of scientific achievement i think we've kind of put philosophy to the side and i don't think it's a good thing but i think people are are bored of it because it's the same questions being asked for thousands of years mm-hmm. but there's a reason that it's been asked and re-asked over and over again because it's something that we have to do every generation yeah. and when we think that it's no longer worth it I think it's a sign of um, a civilization in decline. And in order to reignite the passion of civilization, to reignite our passions of progress, we need to ask ourselves these philosophical questions. And that's why I think, you know, going from the Greeks to the Romans, even going all the way back to the Torah that we'll talk about here in a second, like these ideas were talked about, but we're not talking about them. And I think the reason is, I think there's a few reasons. I think one is industrialization. You know, I think, you know, with industrialization, it kind of changed everybody into workhorses. Not that people didn't work hard before them, but it, it was very seasonal. Mm-hmm. There was a time you worked really hard during the year, and there was a time that you didn't. Um, I also think that, you know, in the past, the nobles, the kings, uh, would commission philosophers and artists. I don't. I, I don't see our civilization investing in art and philosophy like it did. It's, you know, that our leaders don't put emphasis on it, which is, kind of points to the failure of our leaders, frankly. And I think on a, on another level, when you look at the advent of quantum mechanics, you know, of the theory of relativity, the general theory of relativity of Einstein, and you start to see these philosophies like existentialism you start to see people like Foucault come out where everything has become so subjective that they have basically pointed to the the philosophy of the ancient world being sort of obsolete Mm -hmm. and I think they're way off base and I and and I'm not saying quantum mechanics did this but I think people's interpretation of quantum mechanics of of this idea of, of general relativity the the philosophers of the 20th century the great minds um especially after World War II and the depressing results of hundreds of millions of people dead and, and genocide, um, they sort of abandon all of this. And I don't know. Maybe, I don't know, what do you think? I mean, that's, that's kind of, that's where I'm at with this question I've asked myself over and over again with. Well, I, I agree with, you know, several of your points. One of the ones that stands out for me is like, is industrialization in particular and kind of like technologism, scientism, this kind of like, uh, worship of progress that we've embraced, and, and 
I I am a full supporter of technological progress. I think you like refrigerators. Love refrigerators. You like toilets. I love toilets. Sandwiches are great. You know, <laughs> a lot better than you know running from saber tooth cats. I, I really enjoy that. But at the same time, I, I think it has kind of instilled uh, a subconscious bias within us of like everything that's old is bad, and that we have that because of the staggering pace of our advancement. Everything that we've left behind has been left behind for a good reason, and we don't need it anymore. I, I think we've, we're, we're like, um, what's his name, Narcissus, staring at himself in the pond, just kind of like fascinated by our own reflection in the future, that we've forgotten about these things, these building blocks that allowed us to get here in the first place. Like, if, if we look back, like, like we were saying before, like, what society doesn't need prudence? What civilization can be founded without temperance? Like, in what age and in what time and in what place are these things irrelevant? They never are. But we, we've kind of, like, I think it's part of our... It, it, it's our blind arrogance that, that we've either achieved them or no longer need them. I, th- I think it's more than that. I think it's a kind of, like, I think it's a kind of... What you said about philosophy really stuck out at me. It's like, it, people are bored of philosophy because it's the same questions over and over again for thousands of years but what they really are is they're scared of philosophy for the same reason because you can't answer it because you can't answer it exactly there are these nagging questions in the back of the human consciousness that this philosophy of virtue kind of addresses it doesn't answer them but it addresses in the sense that like yes welcome to life it's hard and you're not going to understand it here's four ways to deal with it I mean it started with Descartes I mean they basically wanted to discard all these old questions for two to three thousand years because they're like, well, we're not getting anywhere with this. So let's move on. <laughs> and, and But it goes back to the wrestling, to that Greco-Roman wrestling, to grappling. You know, you may win today, you may lose tomorrow, but they would go back to Aristotle's school. They'd go back to the gymnasium to fight every day. And and not to be cliche here, this is going to, again, be very Lao Tzu here, but it's not in winning it's not in the total victory it's in the grapple it's It's in in the the fight fight that you gain so much so the questions that plato and aristotle and and the stoics and and thomas aquinas and all these great people asked it's not to actually get to a solution it's that each of us in our own life must ask these questions and so the education is in preparing the individual and as there are new individuals every day, each of them must go through the same process. It's, it's very much like the rites of passage. Like go, you go into masonry and everyone does the same thing. There's the same first degree, the same second degree, mm-hmm. third degree. But everybody has to go through it in their turn in order to experience the questions themselves. Well, and I think, too, that you know, we've, we've forgotten about the, the, the fight that has gotten us here. You know, and I and I think what you mentioned is about like World War Two and World War One and twentieth century in general is like kind of really dealing a blow to philosophy has a lot of truth to it because you know it's easy for us who sit in the in the relative comfort of the modern world to not realize that even just the previous century was very traumatic on a collective level for humanity. Mm-hmm. It was some of the most awful things that we've ever done to ourselves happened in the first half of the 20th century. And it's not been that long. Like those wounds aren't over. And I think, you know, after seeing that kind of like destruction on a large scale, it is it is easy to be like, man, fighting really hasn't gotten us anywhere. But it has. Like like doing combat with ourselves, doing combat with our vices, like fighting against 
the inertia of nature to build human society, like it is a worthwhile battle. And, and it's kind of like, I guess you can get worn out on this idea, but like, that's what humanity is about. Like we're here to fight for justice. We're, we're, we're here for the struggle. We're here for the struggle. We're here for the struggle. You know, uh, Cicero, the, the Roman philosopher, he wrote this, and I really like, he said, virtue may be defined as a habit of mind in harmony with reason and the order of nature. It has four parts, wisdom or prudence, justice, courage, and temperance. It's a beautiful quote because it's, you know, these four virtues is a mind in harmony. Hmm. When you practice them, then everything will click. And when you don't, you're going to be depressed, you're going to be unhappy, you're going to have no direction in your life. You're not going to understand why people treat you certain ways. You're not going to understand why things happen to you. And I would argue that anyone that feels that way has not embraced these four virtues. And I don't think any of us are capable of practicing them in, in perfection. But our attempt to do so will bring harmony. It will bring clarity. Yeah, it's like, you know, get, getting up off the dirt floor of the gymnasium, you know, wiping the, wiping the blood from the corner of your mouth and, like, and getting back at it because there's nothing else better to do. Right. And and I, I find it very interesting, the ratio in which he divided the, the time in the school. I, I find that very, very um, appropriate for the practice of philosophy is like a little bit of instruction. But most of it is going to be you fighting to figure it out like that's and that's life. And that, that's masonry. If we look at like a Masonic meeting, like, you know, maybe you meet once, twice, if you're lucky, three, four times a month. Like it depends on the lodge or the order that you belong to. But most of your life is not spent in a Masonic Lodge. The vast majority of your life is not spent in a Masonic Lodge. The vast majority of your life is spent walking on the real mosaic pavement. It's, it's walking on those real life black and white squares. You know, the, the person at your work who's an intractable curmudgeon that you can't get around or this issue in your personal life or your relationship with your children or, you know, your personal inadequacies or your vices that you're wrestling with. Like, that's most of your life. Most of your life is a wrestling match. Occasionally, you get to take a break and listen to Aristotle, right? And, and, actually, and get a refreshment and a, and, a, and a sense of direction. Yeah, you know what? I'm, I really like what you just said because it's making me think of Wikipedia, <laughs> uh, no, really. Like, you know, the problem is today is that we have access to everything. So everybody is, is a specialist now because they have access to all this information. Back then, you, you had to actually, for Aristotle to sit down and talk to you, you had to prove yourself in fortitude and in prudence and in temperance. And then he would deign to give you the secrets of his mind. But now we feel entitled to knowledge. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the mysteries have been blown open. Anybody can go through the temple door and, and get the information. But the truth of the matter is you can't. Because without the work, they're all hollow. The temples are hollow. They're empty. There's nothing in them. You think you're getting it by, by you know, reading this ritual or, or reading this article on Wikipedia. But you really don't know anything by doing that. It's an experience. And I think... That gymnasium, that place where you have to work it out, is how the philosophy was imbued through these actions. And so reading and reading and reading just makes you a library, a library that's empty and that nobody visits. That's such a great analogy for unused philosophy. And, and again, like it's reflected in our society. What's, what's dusty and unused these days? It's our libraries. 
Like it's our our stores of philosophy are empty and untrodden because nobody practices it anymore. It's only it's only, those those repositories of knowledge are only useful when people are engaged in the activities that require that knowledge. And if we're not, then that knowledge becomes forgotten. Philosophy gets relegated to books, you know, or arcane classes at universities. Like it's no wonder we've ended up where we are. We all we have to do is look at what we've done. And what we've done is created the world that we inhabit. And if we want a different world, then we have to start acting differently. We have to start acting along the lines of the four cardinal virtues. You know, the Christians went on to adopt these four virtues as as the cardinal virtues of Christianity. And, and you know, St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and, you know, dozens of writers wrote about these, these four virtues. Um, we're not going to get into that right now, but suffice to say that you know, St. Augustine defined virtue as ordered love. This is a weird mm. concept. I think this is perfect. It's ordered love. That's what a virtue is. And he's basically saying that that virtue and love are, are rational ideas. And that really when, when the Bible says that we are made in the image of God, it is that God is a mind, and our minds are made in his image. Our ability to think, our ability to comprehend, our ability to decipher uh, and to tackle the problems of the world. We, we have been um, imbued with this ability to be creators, right? And this concept of ordered love is the key to virtue. Why do we do what we do? Why do we do what we do? This is a question. Not how we do it, not what we do it, but why we do it. And we do it because of love. Love is the key. It is the crux of the virtues. And I think that's where the four of them point. You know, by love, we traverse the mosaic pavement. By love of ourselves and those around us, we are temperate. It is the apex of the pyramid. You know, the, those, four, those four corners, when you build up the temple, they will lead us to love. And that is why a society is held together. Because ultimately... We have love for our families. We have love for our community. We have a love for our nation. We have a love for the world and for humanity. And the more you practice these four, the more loving you'll become. And the more loving you become, you will have fulfilled your mission as a Freemason.